We are uh, approaching Christmas. We are all anticipating Christmas by now. It is that time of year, and we are approaching also the end of our series on the book of Galatians. Galatians is a letter Paul wrote to churches in what is now modern Turkey. We are in the fifth chapter of it. If you have a bulletin, you will find the passage of Scripture we will be reflecting upon on the back bulletin panel. If not, turn to Galatians 5, chapter 15, as we read God's Word together. And now to lead us in that, Hannah. Today's Scripture reading is from Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 25. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we are approaching Christmas And most of us see it as a holiday and a time of rest and refreshment and family, and I trust that that is what it will be for you. But for Christians, Christmas is also something else. It's a period of advent or arrival. We celebrate the arrival of God in the person of Jesus into the world. Advent is actually a time in Christian tradition of quiet reflection and sober anticipation As we face the dark reality of our own selfishness squarely, long and groan for redemption from the evil we see in the world and the corruption we experience in ourselves. O come, O come, Emmanuel, we sing. And finally, on Christmas Day, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Well, we are... Getting near the end of the letter Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia, here finally, Paul begins to answer some of the questions so many of us have had about what it means to grow into maturity as a Christian. So much of what we've talked about is Paul saying that forms of spirituality, whether secular or religious, that give you a code of conduct for you to follow are what... I would call outside-in, spirituality imposed by the code outside of you. The code itself, beautiful, admirable. The problem is the code has no power to change your heart. And so we need the advent of a new power in us that we may, from the inside out, have a kind of spirituality that is informed by deep love, deep care, deep peace, deep joy. We need a new way of thinking of spirituality. And here, finally, the advent of that new way is shown to us. 
When I was in university and examining Christianity fairly carefully as an agnostic, I had an aha moment. It's the same kind of life-changing aha moment that Martin Luther had when he was riding on a horse in a lightning storm. It's the same kind of aha moment that John Wesley had when he was on a boat that hit a storm as a professional Anglican clergyman going to the United States. John Wesley realized that though he was a professional clergyman in the Christian tradition, he was afraid of dying. My aha moment in London, Ontario was this. I was talking to someone in my program and she was telling me about her newfound faith in Christianity and how it had totally transformed her. And so I told her, yeah, 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 yeah. I grew up going to church. I went to church every Sunday. It was dry, boring, ritualistic, and hypocritical. Didn't change me. Didn't change anybody I know. Been there, done that. And she looked at me, and she did something strange. She didn't disagree. I thought she'd have some trite religious answer, but she said, no, that's often true. But then she said, here's the difference, Dan, in what you said. You said you went to church every Sunday. Lots of people go to church every Sunday. But going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Just like being in a parking lot doesn't make you a car. Being a Christian is something you do from the deep parts of your heart, from the inside. You were a churchgoer. I am a Christian. As we've read Paul's letter, it has become clear that Paul wants to make that exact essential point clear. Being a Christian is not a matter of what you do on the outside. It is not a question of your behavior. In the final analysis, it's who you love. If you measure your Christianity by what you do, if you measure how much God loves you by how much you are doing for Him, then you are relying upon your own efforts to leverage God's favor. You have an outside in spirituality. You're going to pay the rent to the man to get what you want. It is a spirituality of the treadmill, of enslavement to a kind of duty, to temptations to pride if you're doing well, and anxiety, discouragement, and a quiet fear if you're not. Now, Paul says here at the end, there's a better way because there's another advent. Jesus came into the world to purchase your salvation by taking the guilt of it upon the cross. And now the Spirit comes to you personally as your own personal advent. Jesus comes into you to give you, where you are, personal power, peace, and joy, a new life. Paul says here three things. Firstly, the advent of the Spirit into you makes this life possible. So take it. He says the life of the Spirit in you is actually measurable. So measure it. And finally, he says the power of the Spirit in you is offered. So use it. Take it. Measure it. Use it. Firstly, take it. In the first four verses, Paul tells us one singular thing. It's Here's the thesis statement for this whole passage. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify 
the desires of the sinful nature. He's not speaking of, you will not, I forbid you. He's saying, you will not. You have the power to not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Now, note here for those of us looking at the language, the word that you should see in your text is flesh. I translated it sinful nature because though the word mechanically means flesh, in its context, it means the natural human dispositions and desires. What Paul means by flesh here is the natural drive of human beings for selfish ambition, self-absorption, and self-promotion, even at the expense of others. It's what the Bible would call sinful natural inclinations. Paul says you can have power over them. The false teachers who have come into Galatia have said, here's how you have power over your own selfishness. Here's the code. Obey it. Obey the Jewish ceremonial laws. Practice circumcision. Obey Torah. Paul says, don't. Walk instead by the Spirit, and you will experience God's power over this self-absorption and the sinful human nature, and you ask, how? And he says, look at the next verse. For the spirit sets its desires against the flesh, and the flesh sets its desires against the spirit. You hear that language? What's that the language of? A code? No. Keyword, desire. The spirit comes into you. Oh, by the way, it's a person. <laughs> The Spirit of God is not the force. It's not some weird inanimate thing flying out there. It's a person. It's God himself come into you with an, his own intellect, his own will, his own emotion. He's God himself. And he desires certain things. As God the Spirit, he desires to glorify Jesus And he desires to glorify and please God. As God the Spirit, he desires to communicate to you the love of the Father and the grace of the Son into the deepest parts of your soul so they free you from condemnation. This is what the Spirit has come to do, to take the beautiful grace and love of God and pour it into your head and then trickle it into your heart. And this is the second thing the Spirit wants to do, is to take your desires and change them and beautify them and cleanse them so that you eagerly desire not to love yourself, but to love others and to love God. Implication number one, the power of the Spirit-filled, Spirit-empowered life is the power of inside-out spirituality. It's desire At the deepest levels of your inner motivations, not outer regulations, you change. You see, the Spirit works His desires into you. He is inside of you, and He bleeds His desires into your deepest own motivations and hopes and dreams. Now, if you look, Paul says in verse 18, as he finishes this first thought about the power being available, he says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. See the parallel? If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you're led by the Spirit, you will not be under the law. There's the parallel. 
If you are under the law, under an external code, you won't stop gratifying the sinful nature. You will simply obey a religious code for selfish purposes. You will obey the law to get from God what you want. You will obey the code of conduct to look good in front of the people that you want. It will leverage you to the influence in your spiritual or religious tribe that you want, but you're still under the law. Rules-based, outer constraint-based spirituality never actually wins over your desires until your desires are changed. Attitudes and behavior don't. Behavior may change. But underlying attitudes and reasons won't. That's why Paul says, walk by the Spirit. Let him change your desires from the inside out. First implication, inside-out spirituality is always more transformative and powerful than outside-in. That's why the gospel, understood rightly, is so different from every other religious code. And that's why every human being even takes the gospel and wants to turn it into a religious code of do's and don'ts. It's natural to us. Second implication. The presence of tension is proof of the presence and power of the Spirit. He says here, look at this strange part here in the second verse 17. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. And these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Your intention, you want to do the right thing, but you're kept by your own self-absorption from doing the right thing. Yes, that's tension. And you know what happens to most people who are Christians? They feel this tension and they get discouraged because it takes so long to get rid of the tension. I have a couple of things to tell you. Firstly, the tension is actually proof of the Spirit in you because the battle becomes real when the Spirit really comes into you. Because then his desires and your desires, your self-absorbed desires, clash. So if you don't have the battle, if you're not somewhat frustrated with yourself... Watch out. That's where the real danger is. If you do have the battle and you feel like getting discouraged, be encouraged. The battle is proof of the presence and the power of the Spirit trying to change your desires. Now, here's what many of us who are Christians do. Because we haven't completely changed our behavior yet, we feel as if we're losing Because our behavior is slow to change sometimes and some of our attitudes stick around, we feel like we're actually not even sure how we're doing. But be careful that you're not measuring yourself by the same code of conduct slightly revised that the Jewish teachers were bringing. It might not have circumcision. But it might be, I'm not reading my Bible enough. I hear that a lot. I'm not praying enough. I hear that a lot. These are good things, but these are behaviors. And if you turn these into a code of conduct, rather than a way to experience grace, you've created the metric of measurement that codes of conduct always do. You're measuring the wrong things. And so I say to you, The power is available. Take it. Now measure 
its impact on you rightly. Measure well. So the second point is, how do you measure whether the Spirit's working if it's not this behavioral methodology? I'm doing this more and less of this. Well, he gets pretty clear in verse 19 when he contrasts two ways of living. The way of living by the flesh, that's the sinful human nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, etc., Or the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Two ways of living. Two ways of knowing. This is what you measure. There are in these lists, these two lists, a lot of different things going on. If you take a look at the list... Of of the works of the flesh, you at least three see three categories. Firstly, there's kind of pleasure, sensual kinds of lists of things: sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, orgies, drunkenness. That's what we typically think of. But the far larger list are relational attitudes and behaviors: enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. That can happen in a church and in a religious community just as much as anywhere else. And then there's a a kind of a religious works of the flesh, idolatry and sorcery. Believing, putting the wrong God at the top of your life. You don't have to be particularly spiritual to actually have a functional God that you center your life around. It might be your career. Your functional hell is to be poor. And so you put everything into your career. And your career has the, def- has the ability to drain you or delight you, to exalt you or to crush you. You've overinvested in your career. You've given it God-like importance in your life. And you allow it to bend you to its will and shape you according to its dictates. That's the false God that many of us have to face. For me, it was reputation. I don't know what it is for you. But Paul says here, measure this in your life. Are these things getting an increasing hold over you? Have you got a functional God, an idol in your life that you're giving too much importance to? Is sexual indulgence becoming too easy for you? Do you? Are you beginning to just tolerate more and more of the things you once thought and knew would dishonor God? Relationally, are you allowing envy and jealousy to start growing stronger in your life? Is anger getting an increasing hold? These are the things we are called to measure. And in contrast, Paul then gives the fruit of the Spirit. If if you're a Christian, this is what to look for. Love, love the stem. The, many theologians say it's the central one of these out of which the rest grow and flourish. Are you serving people for their own sake and not yours? Are you wishing for the best of even difficult people in your life? Or do you write them off? You hang tough with the tough people to love. Joy, does your delight and settled Faith in God depend upon circumstances and what he's presently doing for you? Or is it in him and who he is? In Jesus and in the spirit. Peace. 
Do circumstances lead to more anxiety and frustration and anger? Or are you finding that you have less and less of feeling controlled by your circumstances and how it affects your inner sense of equilibrium and peace? Do you sense God's goodness even in trials and difficult times? Are you growing in that? Patience, kindness, goodness, (laughs) relationally. Can you suffer? (laughs) We're Torontonians. We do not suffer fools easily. (laughs) Can you suffer a fool? When the subway's late, when somebody cuts you off, when there's too much construction, when your kids are pushing every single button that you have, Are you kind? Are you good? Do you have a kind of sympathy for the brokenness of, and weakness of others, seeing yourself as just as weak, maybe in different ways? Are you faithful? Do you do what you say you're going to do? And when you don't, do you apologize instead of blame shifting? These These are the things to measure. Self-control is probably kind of the bookend to love. Love flows all these. Self-control describes the whole of them. These are how you measure. A couple of quick implications if, if this is what to measure. If you're here and you're curious about the Christian faith, maybe even skeptical, this is actually what Christianity is. It's not some code of conduct that is imposed on the outside of us. Yes, Jesus gives us commands. But no, the dynamic isn't obey these commands and you will get my pleasure. No, it's feel my pleasure. And out of the depth of your gratitude and love, here's the way to love me back. Here's my love language. If that's not the Christianity you thought it was, probe deeper. Because this is what the gospel is supposed to make Christians into. And if we're not, call us out on it. Second, Implication To the Christians in the room here, uh, don't separate these fruit. It's one spirit. And he isn't the spirit of God because he kind of isn't very kind, but he's really good at faithfulness. He's infinitely good at all of them, and he's wanting to grow all of them in you. And so even though in your own life you might be less patient than you are kind, or you might be more faithful then you are gentle. You're being called to be growing in all of these things. How are you doing? Note, Paul's not saying, how many Christian services have you attended? Though we want you to come. By the way, we'd love that you come. But they're not the barometer of your spirituality. They're a symptom of your desire to love God and his people. Finally, know this. Some of you are naturally very gentle and kind and peace-loving. And you can kind of look at this and go, I'm not doing so bad. (laughs) Don't confuse natural genetic and contextual disposition because of how you were raised and who raised you. Don't confuse that with graces of the Spirit of God. I did not grow up in a harmonious, quiet, gentle home. I grew up in a trash-talking, direct, blunt-speaking, aggressive home. That's what was valued. That's what I naturally do. 
I am not naturally gentle and kind, but I'm naturally truth-telling and a few other things. Here's a hint. Take the things you're naturally weak at and measure how you're growing in those. Am I growing in gentleness and kindness and patience? That's what I ask myself every week. Is the Spirit changing me in ways that I was raised to not value? That's when I know the gospel is really taking root and the Spirit is really doing good stuff. Introverts, is God giving you a greater ability to speak up and challenge? Extroverts, are you learning to shut up <laughs> and be quiet and listen and love till the whole story comes out before you cut in with, oh, yeah, 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 I did that too, and then take over the conversation? Never done that in my entire life until, you know, about eight minutes ago. Hmm. Spiritual disciplines are great things, but they're not the rent you pay. They're acts of gratitude and response to the love you're supposed to enjoy. They are a means to a goal, and the goal is the fruit of the Spirit, to be a more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patient person. This power of the Spirit, because of Him coming into you, is available. Take it. The advent of the Spirit gives you a new way of measuring what it means to be a Christian. Measure it. And here, the power of the Spirit finally is for you personally. Now use it. Last couple of verses. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. That word walk also sometimes gets translated with keep in step. It means follow the way that, that the Spirit wants you to follow. Walk the way He's walking. The picture here, in my mind anyways, and it's one picture, but the picture I think God, Paul is painting is that of a child born of his parents, led by his parents, holding the parents' hands, allowing the parents to guide them. Whoops, don't step there. That's dog poo. Up, up, up the stairs, walking with them, letting them guide you. When, when, when the obstacle's too big, letting them maybe pick you up or empower you to get over it. I am um, I'm part of a carpool to uh, my child's school, but it's a subway pool. We just go by subway. I have four kids, two of which are junior kindergarten. And if you've ever taken a JK kid up or down the subway stairs, you know they're just a bit too big for those little legs. So you're kind of, you're kind of up and you're kind of pulling them up to get there. And so they're sort of in air as they hold onto the railing and you. And then when you're going down, they're sort of kind of stumbling down and you're holding them up and recalibrating them. That's the picture I see here. He holds your hand. He guides you when you need to. Tells you when to get on and off. He speaks to you. He gives you power when the step is a bit too big. Or he holds you up when the step is going down is too fast and you might fall. Like a child holding the hand of your father, you are called to walk with the Spirit. I'm going to give you, um, I'm going to give you a word to try and remember this concretely. Uh, it's called cat. I hate cats. Uh, I, I like dogs, but I couldn't figure out an acrostic that worked with D-O-G. So it's cat. C, confess. A, ask. T, trust. C, confess. Confess that you 
cannot live your life in your own strength. You will not please God by your own efforts. You can't get on the treadmill and pay the rent that will make God happy with you. You can't. Confess your own spiritual inability to live up to the code of conduct. Whatever the code of conduct is, unless you lower it so badly that the code of conduct is whatever I authentically want to do, you won't. Confess that. Secondly, ask for the Spirit to fill you and guide you. Do you have anxiety? Ask for help with it. Do you have a decision to make? Ask for the Spirit who is there to give you wisdom. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Do you need power and strength to bear public witness? Do you feel you don't necessarily know what to say? Acts 1.8 says, You will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I was uh, flying home from Vancouver last Wednesday, and I had just had a meeting of, of pastors, and I'm sitting there in, in the Zone 5 lineup for the, for the plane. It's a big plane, and it's a full plane, and I'm in Zone 5, and that's terrible. And I'm just sitting there bemoaning being in Zone 5, and an old man comes up beside me, behind me, with the same, I'm in a terrible place kind of zone. And I look at him, and I turn away, and I hear the Spirit say, talk to him. And I'm like, I don't really want to talk to him. This is Zone 5, man. So I turn back to him, and I look at him, and he's on his phone. I turn away. He said, see, God, he doesn't want to talk to me. And God says, talk to him. So I turn back around, and the phone's just being put in his, in his um, pocket right here. And I said, uh, hey. And he said, hey, you going home? I said, no. Yes, I'm going. I'm going home. He says, what were you here for? I said, um, tempted to save work. I said, work. Oh, I said, a pastor's conference, actually. I'm a pastor. Oh. Well, I used to be a lawyer. I said, oh. (laughs) So did I. He said, how did you go from being a pastor to being a lawyer? And I went, glad you asked. And I said, thank you, Spirit. I'm glad I listened. And then I just got to share my story with him. It didn't go any farther than there, but he was like, huh, interesting. Do you doubt God's love and pleasure in your life? Listen to what Paul prayed for the Ephesian church. He says, I pray that the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 and onward. A spirit of wisdom and revelation. That's the spirit of God in you. In the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened by the spirit of God, that you may know what is the hope of your calling. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? How much he loves you as his inheritance. And what is the surpassing immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Do you doubt God's love and pleasure in your life? Pray this to you. Ask. Finally, trust. The final thing we actually need to do is actually trust that when we've asked, the Holy Spirit will listen to our requests and hold us and guide us and empower us. James 1, when he said, ask for wisdom, finishes with this, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. 
Philippians 1, 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He's convinced because God wants you to ask. He says in Ephesians 5, 18, be filled with the spirit. So if you ask according to what he wants you to do, what do you think he's going to say? Yes. I was walking up the stairs um, a few days ago, listening to a fight that had broken up upstairs. Uh, the two combatants will remain nameless for now. <laughs> uh, uh, let's just say two women in my life were going at it. And, and when the younger one goes after the older one, she can wear her down. And I get worked up about that. I'm pretty protective of this nameless person upon whom the sun rises and sets. And so I was getting worked up and I was starting to stomp up the stairs and I could hear the stomping. And then I just said, Spirit of God, stop me from being so angry. Help me. And so I was able, by the time I got to the room, to curb my irritability and my anger and firmly, but with some level of calm, measured gentleness, say, hey, don't treat your mother that way. Here's the real issue. We doubt. We doubt. We don't want to confess because we doubt that we're not good enough. And we think maybe we can pay some of the rent. That we somehow can deserve his pleasure. We don't want to ask, A, because we doubt that if we give him full ownership of our life, He won't guide us in a good way. He'll take us in some weird way. He'll take us to Japan. (laughs) Are you going to Japan with no joy, Jess? You're going to Japan with lots of joy because of the deepest levels of desire. He has done something powerful and beautiful in you. We don't believe that if we depend, he will be that good to us. We don't want to trust because we don't think we really deserve it. Yeah, we're right. We don't. But here's the point. The same God who is asking you to believe in the advent of the Spirit of God in your life and trust Him, confess to Him, ask and trust, is the same God who sent His Son into history for you to take your sin upon himself and to become a curse for you. How deeply do you know he loves you? He sent his son to die for you. Do you think you can trust him to lead you? Jesus didn't come. Be rejected. Be cursed. Die, be rejected by men and have the judgment of God poured out on him on the cross. He didn't do that just so you could have God's pardon. He rose from the dead so you could rise from the slavery to sin. He went into heaven to prepare a place so you could enjoy the inheritance of perfection and beauty. He died and rose and went to heaven to accomplish the whole thing. And he sent his spirit to do it in you. He who began a good work will complete it. Keep in step with the spirit. Walk with him. Confess. Ask. Trust. And love, joy, peace, and patience will rise in you. Let us pray. 
Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness and your grace. What a better way to live the Christian life than trying to obey a code of conduct, to have our desires changed by the deepest grace and the deepest love poured into us. That's a joy. Help us to walk that way toward true holiness. We pray in Christ's name, in the power of his spirit. Amen. All right, we have time for a few questions. So if you want to put your hand up, if you have the courage to do that, we'll give you first instance. If not, we'll go to the text to ask questions. So has anyone got a hand up? It's okay, you can stretch. Don't worry, I won't grab you if you're stretching. You can, okay. We'll go to text for now. Why do you think we have the desires of the flesh if it was not God's intention? That's about a six-hour answer. You have asked. That's a really good question. Uh, Going back to creation, we have to say God dignified us with real choice. Adam and Eve were given real choice. You can create corruption by your moral choices, corruption that goes to the rest of the human race after you and corruption that goes into the cosmos with you. That's how much I'm going to dignify your moral choices, so don't eat that one fruit. They did. And God said... I am going to dignify your moral choice by allowing the consequences of that dignity to roll themselves out. And you will have corruption into the human race and every human heart. And you have now wrought corruption into the cosmos. The dignity of God's love for us as his image bearers drove him to give us the dignity of the moral ability to ruin the world and ruin it we did that is why okay next question how do you dabble in idolatry or sorcery uh, idolatry would all obviously be um, uh, worshiping a false god at the time that was quite obvious to watch there were all kinds of other religions with other kinds of gods other religions that worship other gods would qualify here as idolatry. But functionally speaking, a bunch of theologians, Tim Keller being one of them, have realized that idols don't have to be actual deities. They can be functional gods that you have in your life. So you might consider yourself quite secular and not particularly religious, but have something that you've given your life to that you center your identity around. And though you don't give it a name of a deity, you've actually treated it functionally, sociologically, psychologically as a god so that would be some example what do i think of horoscopes and yoga i could probably use some yoga right now at my advanced age in terms of the stretching but in terms of the religious aspects i think very little horoscopes are bunk don't waste your time yoga is good for stretching but religiously speaking it doesn't point you to jesus so there you go how old is the earth A day older than it was yesterday. Thank you. (laughs) There's nothing in the preacher's manual on how to transition from a question like that to the Lord's table. So uh, we're in in unusual territory here. I will say this. Oh, that's a little too cute. Yeah, okay. It's a bit cute. I apologize. From before the earth was young, from before the earth 
was created, God in his mind had already decided to send Jesus to his death. What we're about to rehearse, what Christians call the Lord's table, transcends time. Because there wasn't a moment before time was, and there hasn't been a moment since time is, that Jesus didn't know that he was going to become human and die on the cross for you. Even before he became man and human in compassion, he knew what he was going to do, and he agreed with it. That's amazing. And then he came into human history. And on the night, the darkest night, when he was about to be betrayed, he broke bread in a final meal with his disciples and said, this is my body given for you. Do this. Eat it in memory of me. A little while later, he took a cup, a cup of wine and said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, by which he meant his death would be a covering that would pay the price for the guilt of your sin and of mine. In his death is your life. In his death is your grace. In his death is your joy. And Jesus said to us, do this in memory of me. And so now we are going to, in obedience to him, eat and drink of the grace that he showed us at the cross that we may remind ourselves That it's not outside in, but at the deepest level, it's God's unconditional grace in our lives that animates and motivates us to obey him. I'm going to pray, and after I've prayed, the table will be open. The bread will be gluten-free. The cup will have darker cups, which are wine, and lighter cups, which are grape juice. Feel free to take the bread and the cup as it's passed to you in your own time personally. Let me pray, and after I've prayed, we'll open the table. Father, I thank you and praise you. Your goodness is great. Your grace is infinite. Help us now by the greatness of your grace to feed and drink with joy and gratitude. We love you, and we praise you. Bring by your Spirit Jesus really and deeply into our hearts. And let us feast on his grace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Tables open. Enjoy.